live for another episode of First Strike. Thank you, everyone, in the YouTube chat that have been waiting for us to come on live. And thank you, everyone, for jumping in on Tuesday. You know, unfortunately, my fiance's birthday was on Monday yesterday, so decided to move, postpone the episode to tonight. But no, we're not skipping any of the episodes, and we haven't since we started. So here we are tonight with, with Brian. So I hope that gets people excited. We got Andy in the house, and we got Matthew Dilks in the house. Uh, Toronto Open champion. Before we get down to the show, let's just talk about our sponsor, facefacegames.com, the number one place to get your Magic the Gathering singles. Uh, daily deals every day and deals on the weekend as well. Definitely check them out, especially if you want to get your Rivals of Ixalan singles and all that. And also, quickly plug the First Strike Patreon if you want to support the show in any way. Every dollar matters. Uh, Patreon.com slash First Strike. It helps us produce not just this show, but other projects that we've got going on, including the POV series with Andy right here and Alex Bianchi. Uh, experiment with the video format with different decks that the nation wants to see. So if you want to support all of our content, then, then you know, just go to Patreon.com slash First Strike and donate a dollar. really helps. So let's get on with the show. Matthew Dilks. Pretty excited when I heard that you and Derek were in the running to, to win the championship and you managed to take it down. So congratulations, my man. Thank you. And uh, I've, you know, last we talked, we had you on when you had your success, uh, when I saw your name during Eternal Weekend, but now you decided to take down a modern event, a huge one. Toronto's events are always huge. Uh, what did you pilot? Uh, I played uh, Blue Red Moon. Blue Red Moon, a pretty standard version or, or something with a unique twist? Uh, no gimmick moon, no Through the Breach, no Madcap Experiment, just Young Pyromancers and Counter Spells. I think Rob, Rob's been tra- trumpeting a version of uh, his own version of uh, Lombardi that is uh, Blue Red Moon in the First Strike Nation, but he mentioned that when he saw your list, uh, he said, like, you just crushed the face to face games open with a similar but different. Uh, that version that is putting more pressure game one with the full set of Pyromancers. I feel that's probably the correct approach. You get full free value, win value from Blood Moon, get to close close the game fast if needed by being evasive or going wide and have access to all the control elements. Um, so do you think your version is just better for, for the current uh, metagame? As is? Um, I'm going to say yes, because people don't you, you do that slight different thing and people don't know what's coming. And you just get them off guard. I find right now in modern, you have to be like kind of at the cutting edge, like the, the, new, the newest thing to get an edge. Otherwise, you should just play whatever deck you've been playing for years. Well, Andy was uh, saying before the show that he only needs to update two cards every now and then. So I guess you, you, don't, agree with, you don't agree with that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so uh, a lot of the decks that I could play, like for example, in Affinity, there's just not that much room to do different things. So, like basically, every few few months, you just change one card, or maybe two cards, or maybe you change your sideboard. But in reality, a lot of decks stay very similar for a long time. It's just like slight metagame calls is all you do. And I think the Young Pyromancer is probably a good metagame call in a world full of like Tron and Scapeshift and that kind of stuff. So I think that was certainly well positioned. So changing your cards for a metagame is is more so than like making a deck better. Uh, 
Matt, were you playing this deck for a while now, or was this a decision like close uh, as we as we drew closer to the tournament? Uh, I won a tournament uh, a couple months ago, the face to face ultimate showdown in uh, in Toronto here, just the the end store series, and I was playing Teamer Moon for that for that event. And deck felt sweet. I mean, Tireless Track is awesome. I love it from Legacy. Um, but it just felt like with Fatal Fatal Push being in the format, Tarmogoyf is not really where you want to be. But I still thought getting free like free wins from Blood Moon was great. Then uh, Rob and uh, my buddy Edgar, who is at the Pro Tour right now, has been testing this uh, Blue Moon deck. And they've been winning a lot with it without any of the Through the Breach or Madcap experiment nonsense. And they've been, uh, well, Edgar's been slowly going up in Young Pyromancers, and between, like, my little testing group, we've all been winning a lot, so decided to play at the event. And you crushed it. Um, Lost round you, one and then didn't lose. Did you have to face uh, Derek Pite? Misplaced Ginger? Nope. Dodge Derek. <laughs> Dodge Derek was playing uh, Grixis Death Shadow, or some version of Death Shadow, I think. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was straight up Grixis. I don't know if he's doing anything else in his sideboard. Do you list? What did you lose in the round one then? I lost to Affinity. I had a pretty bad draw. I didn't draw any lightning bolts or electrolyzes and just got crushed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brian's in the house. What's up, Brian? Hello, KYT. Thank Ooh, you for being. Uh, thank you for being patient for my involvement. Oh, that sexy voice. Um, I, I wanted to hear the guys take because um what brian what do, you, what do you think about blue moon actually in, in the modern uh landscape uh i think it's interesting uh, i'm not dismissing it out of hand it feels a little underpowered to me if we're being honest like there's just a lot more broken things you can do and it's kind of like the problem if, if you're one of those people who has problems with blue white those problems are amplified by something like Blue Moon, right? On on pure power level, the cards are a lot weaker. You do have the I win button of Blood Moon, which is nice. I think it bails you out of a lot of spots. Um, you know, I'd be interested to hear how reliant on Blood Moon um, you felt if you, it was really a card you had to lean on a lot. But I, I suspect it probably is. Like, it's very difficult to play just fair magic um, with kind of an underpowered deck here. But I, I do think that steps towards adding Young Pyromancer and maximizing that card. You know, I used to play some Blue-Red Delver back in the day, and it was the same thing, where like a lot of your cards were underpowered, but Young Pyromancer was able to swing a lot of games in your favor, and that was when you had access to, like, Gataxian Probe, and you're able to just go off, and, like, your whole thing was just survive the early game, protect a Pyromancer, Spell Pierce to back it up. And I, I think that... The Blue Moon deck is probably better at playing those style of games than trying to, to be this like long quasi control deck. You're really not a control deck. Like you're just trying to seize the initiative for a few turns, um, keep your opponent from executing the entirety of their plan. It's not like you want. You don't necessarily feel like you have inevitability. You don't want the game to go on thirty turns. You know, unless Blood Moon is particularly powerful. But we know as the game goes on, Blood Moon certainly decreases in effectiveness against a large portion of the field. So. I'm really not looking to play long games. I like the move towards Young Pyromancer. I was a big proponent of Through the Breach in the deck. Um, that has some problems. It's like kind of inconsistent. But basically, you need a way to close the game very quickly. And so I'm on board with the Pyromancer plan. You mentioned underpower a lot, but does it fall under your list of considerations for GP Toronto, let's say, Bri? I doubt it. I, I, I mean, I need to see what the Pro Tour brings. I would love to do something much more broken 
um, just like inherently unfair. People who are in the first strike nation know I've been shopping around uh, <laughs> green, black, and feckless based on a, a Japanese deck that Jerry and I talked on the game podcast last week. Uh, basically using the same idea, but try and integrate uh, Death Shadow into the mix. Because the original deck was leaning a lot on, uh, you know, Mishra's Bauble, Street Wraith, um, minimizing your deck size to do just uh, Phyrexian Crusader and Ink Moth Nexus with a lot of consistency. I tried instead applying that to kind of the Death Shadow type game plan because you can reduce your life total really quickly. Um, I, I think it's got potential. It's got a, a Valorous in there, one of my favorite cards. So you can do the, you know, put 13 plus one plus one, plus one counters on your Ink Moth Nexus and just one-shot them out of nowhere. It kind of gives you some game going long. Um, but there might be some sticking points with the list. I, I need to explore some things. Right now, I would say something like that is my favorite to play at Toronto, but there's a lot of unknown information with an entire Pro Tour coming up, so I'm, I'm not committing to anything yet. <laughs> Matthew, uh, what do you have to say about someone who says Brian, that's stopping Brian from playing Blue-Red Moon? Do you agree with them? Uh, yeah. It's not <laughs> doing anything like broken. Doesn't play Mox Opal. Doesn't doesn't kill on turn two. But uh, it it certainly stops stops you, people from killing you on turn two. And you know, Blood Moon's a stupid card. It 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 comes with a certain amount of free wins as well. So I don't know. Uh, maybe um maybe I'm winning despite the deck. <laughs> But I think the deck is good. Oh, you've been crushing. Um, yeah. You've been really crushing. Um, I <laughs> really doing well. Especially, I, I completely forgot that you had won the uh, end of the year store showdown that they had. So, just crushing it. Um, so, I, I'm assuming you're likely bringing a very similar version heading into the GP. I, I find it hard to believe that people are gonna. Well, most people are gonna adjust to the Pro Tour, anyways. Actually. Well, I also am in on the hype for Phyrexian Crusader. Uh, if I am open to it being broken. Uh, it's pretty likely that I have Blood Moon and Cryptic Command in my deck for, <laughs> for Toronto, but uh, we'll see. Uh, I've played a lot of different decks in Modern, so I'm going to play whatever I feel like is going to be give me my best shot. Sounds good. A- Andy, what do you think about the, the list Brian posted in the Nation? It is it is wild. Like I want I I love it. I want to love it. I want it to be good so bad. It just looks it has everything everything it's trying to do is so broken. And that's uh what Brian always is talking about about his approach in modern and that's sort of my approach in modern as well is like your deck has to be incredibly proactive and this deck is incredibly proactive and is attacking so fast and for the decks that aren't prepared for it, it would run. It will run them over. There's, there's nothing else about it. If you're not playing removal spells, you are going to immediately get run over by this deck. <laughs> so you're gonna try it, right? You're gonna try it soon. Oh, I'm gonna try it, and I'm gonna try it probably for too long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's just jump into uh, some standard, some standard, some. Uh... Brian's been uh, playing more despite the GP being modern. Uh, Brian, you're just, you're just in love with standard right now. Dude, it's so great. I just <laughs> want to play all the time. It's been so long since like, I just wanted to pop off some casual games. Like All I want to do is just play standard, um, brew standard decks. It's a very strange, strange feeling. Um, but there's a lot to unpack with this standard. 
there's a lot of things that people are doing wrong, which is like one of my favorite times to be involved because then it just like sets off this desire in me to to prove myself right and and you know educate people to what I see as the flaws in their approaches to deck building and metagaming. Um, so yeah, the standard has definitely captured my attention right now. I just want to play all the time. I'm brewing decks while I'm at work. Uh, I'm dreaming about decks. <laughs> like it's, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to unpack here. So. <laughs> Actually, before we, we get into the nitty gritty of some of the decks that you're trying and some of the strategies that people should uh, commit to in standard, uh, there's a question uh, in, in the Frustrate Nation Facebook group talking about now from David Kib- Kibler saying standard is the best it's been in a long time, which uh, we seem to all agree, but attendance is still low. What should Wizards do to rebrand standard if they need to? Um, any esports <laughs> opinion from you, Brian? Well, so I saw this question, but. It's like fundamentally flawed because what is his basis for saying that attendance is still low? I mean, like, I have no idea where that's coming from. Attendance has has not been low as far as I've heard. Like, I'm talking to my friends who are running LGSs. They say their attendance is back up from where nobody was playing standard previously. And now they have people playing standard. Um, so I, I don't really know how to address that. I don't have any basis for thinking that um, attendance hasn't recovered from, you know, the doldrums of Team or Energy Mirrors. I mean, is it at its all-time peak? No, probably not. Damage has been done to standard. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. Things have been really bad for a real long time. Consumer confidence is shook. Um, Gameplay hasn't been a ton of fun. Deck building hasn't been a ton of fun. I I don't blame people for not being invested, but I, I do think things are trending upwards. I have no reason to believe that attendance is going down further from where it was in Team or Energy time. I mean, I don't know. Do you guys have evidence of that being the case? Still not enough data at in, in store. Uh, it was trending down for a while, but uh, I haven't have enough d- uh, data for for the most recent uh, couple of weeks. Of yeah, we're only trend. like one one or two weeks in, right? It's like people are probably still accumulating and buying cards. I, I don't know. I, it just seems early to make that kind of statement. I don't think there's really any basis for it. Um, if we come back in five weeks and you know the standard attendance is still at the same level as it was pre-rivals okay we can have that conversation but i i just don't see that being the case right now it seems like people are into standard and i know um you know i'm getting a lot of engagement from people who want to talk about standard it seems like the interest is there where for a long time it was just like nobody really wanted to talk about it i mean honestly i didn't want to talk about it i I didn't think there was a lot of points of excitement and you know it opened up some new areas of exploration like we were able to do some deep dives on like decks like team energy because they were around for so long and really you know, get to the nitty gritty of certain matchups, but I don't know, man. Like that's that's it, it's got diminishing returns for me. I want to talk about new stuff and explore new ideas. That's really where my excitement peaks. So uh, I think we're back doing that now, and I feel like attendance will probably reflect that. I, even if it's not up, which I would be surprised if that's the case, but even if it's not yet, I think it will be. I think we're getting to a place where attendance will trend back up. Like the only yeah, uh, I don't know if Andy or, or Matt have played standard much at their local LGSs to know. Well, uh, so last uh, before the banning, uh, there was a standard PPTQ in in an, an area, and there was nineteen players. After the banning, there was forty one players. Like it's not it, like there was a, a lot of different. The pricing was a bit different and everything, but people are excited to play standard because it's uh, wide open. It's newly explored. So like. 
people have a lot of incentive to try and figure out what's good. And that's a puzzle that a lot of people like to solve. So for the people who don't just come for the gameplay and come for the puzzle of what's good and what they want to play, this is a good time for them too. So right now it's kind of a good time for everyone who likes standard for whatever reason you like standard. There's like these cool combo-y niche decks that are around. There's these like go over the top decks. There's like good aggro decks. There's something for, for everyone. And I think it, that's going to show in attendance. I don't think they need to rebrand necessarily. I think standard being better now will just uh, rebrand itself as well, standard being better. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that was a good speech, Andy. Uh, I think the only thing uh, regarding attendance that I've heard, uh, which is not standard related, was someone wanted me to comment on, which is the GP Houston, how it only had 887 players for the main event. Um, and that's likely due to it being like a double GP weekend. There's a, a GP in London, and then there's people prepping for the PT that are already at the PT. I don't know, near the PT, so less people there um, or, or doing other stuff. But what was interesting, of course, just going to make a quick mention, is that despite there being 887 players for the main event, there were 302 players for Popper. Um, wow, just uh, maybe it's not going to end up being like Frontier. Maybe it's got a long-lasting, especially with Channel Fireball handling all the GPs and promoting it as such, and, and Tolerian uh, Community College, everybody promoting it more than I've seen people promote stuff like Tiny Leaders and uh, Frontier in the past. So like before Frontier was, you know, in Canada, was pushed a lot by, like, bloggers and, and local players, but now we're just seeing this, like, just Channel Fireball really pushing this format. So that was interesting to see. But uh, back to Standard, Brian. Uh, you mentioned, like, Jadine. Everyone should check out Jadine's article on SCG, right? So good. It was such a good article. And, you know, honestly, she's, I, I think she's one of the top theorists um, writing right now. She does a great job every week. Um, but she really got to the crux of my current point of excitement with Standard. And that's everyone is building their Jade Light Ranger, Merfolk Branch Walker decks wrong. Um, kind of like trying, basically, they're just trying to slot the card into old teamer list, or excuse me, old Soul Tie list, and, and even old teamer list to some extent. But it's not the way those cards work. Like they're designed to maximize your land drops so you never miss a land drop. And they're designed to allow your deck to scale into the late game. Um, so I've kind of really amped up in, in that area of exploration um focusing on cards that are kind of like bifurcated in their nature things like champion of wits which is not a card you typically see included in soul tie it's a four of in my soul tie list right now because having the um having access to it on three and then again having access to it on seven is a really big deal plus you're milling cards with your branch walkers and your jade light rangers so you can just put your champion of wits in the graveyard right off the bat you don't even have to cast it and then you just have a seven drop sitting in your graveyard that's game breaking um, that you can just access whenever you want. And it's probably going to be on turn seven because you hit all of your land drops. You never miss with, you know, having a deck loaded with branch walkers and jade light rangers. I think there's other interesting avenues to explore. You can look at the synergy between graveyard based creatures. We're starting to see some green Kenras pop up in like the red green aggro list as well as red Kenra. So there's a synergy right there when you're filling up your graveyard via jade light ranger and merfolk branch walker. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really strong cards that access the graveyard right now. Scrap Heap Scrounger is another one, um, just completely suited to be put into the bin with Jade Light Ranger and Merfolk Branch Walker. 
Um, and, and so you're getting this kind of uh, two-pronged attack where you're able to better utilize your graveyard, so you have, more, you have more resources than your opponent, and you're also getting yourself the mana to deploy those resources. You're never missing land drops. So those two things in combination with, with each other speak to kind of like... Like, people look at green-red monsters, right? The Rekindling Phoenix Glorybringer deck. And on its face, I think it appears to be strong because it just has these huge flying beaters that are difficult to deal with and have inherent card advantage. And that's only an actual small part of the equation. A lot of it is the fact that your deck never misses land drops and you're just able to scale into the late game really well. And, and now the best versions of these green-red monsters are getting access to their graveyard. They're using the Kenraz efficiently, which just doesn't surprise me at all it, it's absolutely the correct way to build these decks and you know i think there was some uh controversy as to whether branch walker was a good card this week i know jerry and brad were sparring back and forth branch walker is a good card if you don't realize it you're building your decks wrong you're, you're trying to slot it into spots that um other cards previously occupied it, it does a new thing it's not the same as the last cards that came before it you need to approach it differently you need to look to maximize it differently your Soul Tide deck should not look the same as they did pre-Rivals, pre-Rotation. These, these are new cards, new powerful effects, and you should adjust to absolutely exploit them to their fullest. Sweet. Shout-outs to everyone in the chat. Shout-out to Matt Mendoza. Quick shout-out for winning his BPTQ with Hazard Red. Uh, Andy, you saw Matt's... Uh, you saw Brian's... Sultilist, and uh, you were kind of perplexed that that he prefers. There was an argument, sort of debate in in the thread. Chukabra, my favorite name in all of Magic, versus Hostage Taker. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So my experience with uh, Chupacabra has been pretty positive, and every time I've played Hostage Taker, it has just been pretty underwhelming for me. But Brian's built his deck. In a different way. So when I, when I compare it to the Grixis list that, for example, I, I play in, and Alex played in, in our video series, there's not a lot of creatures. The only, like, must-kill creature that, like, from turn one through four is basically just the Glensleaf Siphoners. And I think that's where our experience has differed to the point where I've had all these positive experiences with Chupacabra because it's catching me up. But... Brian's likely having a positive experience with Hostage Taker because his opponents have spent time killing his other creatures, and then the Hostage Taker is allowed to be like the complete busted card that it's able to be. But I've been just sort of settling with Chupacabra because it's I think it's a necessity for my deck. So that's kind of where I think I stand on the debate. Like they're both very good cards. Hostage Taker obviously is a overall more powerful card. I just find that Chupacabra is safer and, and helps at least uh, the deck that I play with less creatures uh, catch up against aggro decks. Brian, does that make sense to you? Yes, but it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I do get where, where you're coming from. I, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic. There's certainly circumstances where Chupacabra is probably preferable to Hostage Shaker, but I likened it to people choosing to play Charging Monstrosaur over Glorybringer. Like, yes, this card is effective. It's amazing at what it does. But the absolute, like, game-breaking dominance is not the same between a card like Ravenous Chupacabra and Hostage Shaker. 
Um, Ravenous Chupacabra does its job extremely well, leaves no doubt that it's going to kill something, and where that's what your deck needs, it's probably the right tool for the job. I will say, though, that I think if you build your deck in that fashion, you're not taking advantage of the tools available to you. When we're talking about Jade Light Ranger, Merfolk Branch Walker decks that never miss a land drop, Hostage Taker becomes a much more appealing card for a few reasons. Number one, you're you're drawing a lot of your removal via your aggression. Like if you're Branch Walkers, if you're playing three twos on turn two and four threes on turn three, you're clocking pretty early and you get to the point where they have to kind of remove your threats. They aren't able to just sit back on their removal. So sometimes you're able to just play Hostage Taker. And in spots where like your opponent taps out and you just get through damage for a turn, it's a functionally identical card, right? It does the same thing. Except there's some things that Hostage Taker can take care of that Chupacabra can't take care of. Things like Hazaret. Um, but where it really shines is when you scale into the late game. And in a lot of contexts, I think that's what your, um, your green-based decks should be looking to do. Um, so in other contexts, I, I do get Chupacabra over um, Hostage Shaker. But I think in green-based decks, you're, you're really trying to utilize your Jade Light Ranger, Branch Walker to the fullest, and get to that turn where you just like play hostage taker, take their Chupacabra, say, and play it immediately and totally swing the game around to the point where you can never lose. Uh, And there's just so many situations I've played where hostage taker gets me out of something that Chupacabra would be completely worthless in. Like, I just played against Godfaro's gift and had worn my opponent out of resources and the last card in his hand when he hit seven mana was his Godfaro's gift. And he got to bring back one creature and then my next turn I hostage taker his Godfaro's gift and the game was over. So it has a lot of versatility uh, beyond just being like on raw power level, a far more powerful card than Chupacabra ever was. Um, I've said a lot. I think Chupacabra's prominence in the metagame has a lot to do with Patrick Sullivan. And Patrick Sullivan spoke very eloquently <laughs> and very intelligently about Chupacabra. But he, I think he conflated the success of Chupacabra, or the failure of Chupacabra in terms of game design with its impact on the metagame. Um, and he, he kind of like crossed the two up a little bit. Yes, it's a failure of game design. Like there's, there's better ways to make this effect happen. But that in and of itself doesn't make it a dominant card. Like it, its rate is just fine. We had Necrotal for years, which sat on the bench. Like why didn't every single black deck have four Necrotals in their sideboard if this is the best possible effect you could have? The fact is, it's just not. Like, the rate's not that insane, and we build our decks to account for cards like Ravenous Chupacabra. Like, the entire shape of magic is based around comes into play um, effects, and I I just think like, Chupacabra (laughs) should be insane versus an old-school style of magic, but that's not what we play anymore, so. I love it. It's just I love that you say the the card name so much, and it just makes like, yeah, wake up, Andy, you noob type of talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it. This weekend, I'll register hostage shaker, and if if I'm wrong, there's there's something I will do. I'm not sure what it is. I, I will say, in, in playing a lot of Sultai, there have been a strong number of games, like a, a noticeable number of games that I would have just lost if I was playing Chupacabra as opposed to hostage shaker. So, yeah. Yeah, but my my point is that like the Grixis deck has a lot of the tools that your hostage shaker is helping uh, like alleviate like the the artifacts. Like Grixis has access to artifact removal, but I'm I'm certainly open to being wrong about this one because I do love the card and I already own some. 
from being very lucky in draft. I will say that I don't think Grixis wants either, for what it's worth. I, I mean, I think Grixis wants to be based around Flyers. Like, you should have four Rekindling Phoenix in your Grixis deck, and, and that's the more efficient way to build that deck. Um, and, and maybe, like, some sideboard hostage takers would be my inclusion. Um, but I don't have a ton of experience with Grixis. Maybe that's more of just, like, a preference, the way I would choose to build Grixis. Like, there certainly are more controlling slants you could put on it, and then maybe Chupacabra is the correct card. Um, but I don't think that's the optimal version of Grixis. I think you want to focus more on some aggression out of Grixis. Uh, Brian, are you focusing Sultai because it's more your style, or do you think it's potentially the, the broken deck in the format? I just think the combination of Jade Light Ranger, uh, Merfolk Branch Walker, Champion of Wits is right. like an awesome, awesome combination that allows you to play into the late game on par with really any late game in the format. Um, in pre-board games i find it very difficult to lose to grixis to the point where like i have zero post-board cards against them in my configuration right now i think that's a mistake because if they sideboard properly i'm pretty sure they slant the matchup slightly in their favor in post-board games like basically they have to go they have to try and get bigger than me so if they do like torrential gear hulk glimmer of genius um you know anything any kind of plan that goes larger uh, bring in like 4S and scatters, things like that, I think they'll be successful because you have some issues cleaning up glory bringers in the configuration I'm in now. But uh, on the whole, I think I, if I make some small concessions in the sideboard to Grixis, I would be favored post-board as well. I talked today that I think one of the things... Another card I'm playing in Sultai is... Uh, I'm going to forget the name. The new Elvish Visionary, the vampire guy who take one and draw a card when it comes into play. Um, and a concession I'm looking to make to that now is I think across my 75, I want four copies of Aether Sphere Harvester, which is weird. I never thought I'd find a four Aether Sphere Harvester deck, but I think this is it. I, th- I think you get a lot of ancillary value from, you know, having some kind of meaningless creatures floating around. And it's such a key card against Grixis right now. It lines up so well against their threats. Um, you know, not being vulnerable to Glorybringer, being able to block Glorybringer, stonewalling, rekindling Phoenix. Um, having an answer for Whirler Virtuoso. So I'm kind of into Aethersteer Harvester as the best possible answer against Grixis right now, um, which is a little weird. I think that's kind of unintuitive. It's not the card. I mean, most people have their Aethersteer Harvesters in their sideboard for Mono Red, right? But I think it's just secretly a great card against Grixis as well. So that's an avenue I want to explore. Okay. Andy, you you had mentioned uh, before, like when we talked before producing the, the POV of last week that you and Alex both thought Grixis Energy was the best deck. Do you still feel that way after filming it and talking to Brian? Uh, uh, still currently, yeah, I think it's the best deck. Um, I could see there being another best deck. We're so early in the format. I think Grixis Energy was, is certainly like likely the most tuned out of the gate deck because it's already sort of pre-built. People were already almost playing this, like the exact cards that are being played now before. So out of the gate, it's like a very well-tuned deck. So maybe it's the best deck for a few weeks early on. But uh, there is so much to explore in the format that it could certainly be dethroned by a large number of things later on. And uh, Bryant's Explore uh, Saltai deck is actually something that looks really good to me. It does look very good to me. And I really like the way that uh, Jadine and Bryant have mentioned using Explore in that extra way and that's kind of pushing me back towards playing those cards as well i think i myself fell into the very easy trap of just 
Jade Light Ranger is Rogue Refiner now. Merfolk Branchwalker is just like just a, a little value card, but I think I wasn't getting the full value out of my cards. And Brian's list maybe is is going to be the best deck once <laughs> he's finished tuning it. Maybe could be. Damn it! He called you a noob, and now you're just praising him. I love it. <laughs> I'm very scared. <laughs> did um, not say the word noob, KYT. Come on. <laughs> like, any, anybody who plays Chupacabra does not know what they're doing. First of all, I love that, I love that you call it Chupa. I can't even say what you just said. Chupababra. What was that? Chupababla? It was, it was amazing. But um, Andy's not alone. I mean, it's, it's like everyone. Everyone fell into this trap. And it's, it's kind of like mind-boggling how far people went down this rabbit hole. Um, maybe I'm just wrong. I mean, maybe I'm the one idiot who doesn't see it. That's totally possible because the vast, vast majority of people are like, Chupacabra is the most broken card in the set. It, it's a four of and everything. But if you're starting to look at the numbers, the numbers are trending down now. You're seeing fewer and fewer Chupacabras. And I think there's a reason for that. I think people are playing with it and they're like, oh, wait, this effect is just like good. It's not great. It's not what you build a constructed format around. If there was a theoretical constructed format where like Merfolk was the best deck, then yes, Chupacabra is the best possible card to be playing. But Merfolk is hot garbage. Like nobody should be playing that deck. So it's kind of like Chupacabra is an answer for a problem that doesn't exist. That's how I look at it. I gotta, I gotta run back the tape to see how I pronounce it <laughs> before. Like, I think I say Chuka. Maybe I say Chupacabra. Uh, and wow, now I just lost my train of thought. But we were talking about. Uh, oh yeah, I, I was going to mention the last time you made sort of this bold statement. I don't know if the verdict is still out. But you thought unlicensed disintegration was unplayable and were you right for that given time i think uh, so pr- probably n- probably not when i said it probably okay, not yeah. when i said it but uh i mean things eventually trended in that way kind yeah. of for the reasons i said it um i was just probably like way too far ahead for that to be a pertinent <laughs> statement at the time um but it was it was a little like I guess it was like some overzealous forecasting the eventual steps where i saw the format going but not where it was at that point uh, Matt, have you messed around with Standard? On do any of these decks that these guys are really enamored with like pique your interest? Uh, I have not played Standard still since Nationals. It all sounds awesome, and I probably won't have time to play any of it. Because all <laughs> I have is Modern and Legacy tournaments coming up for me. <laughs> what, what's up next for you? Uh, GP, GP Toronto's next, and then... Uh, Legacy SEG Open in March, and then the Legacy GP in Seattle. Mm. Has there been any uh, breakthroughs or anything, big Legacy tournaments that have come up in the recent, like, between the time that you've been on the show? Any developments? No, Legacy, for the most part, is the same. It's still good. People are just bored of it and complain, but it's still awesome. Death Art Shaman's fine. (laughs) That's what Shaman, man. Andy. Your favorite card. That's right, Shaman is fine. Get this guy out of here. One last topic, because Brian has to leave, that uh, people are talking about in in this First Strike Nation uh, quickly about, and and I always defer to Brian when it comes to any of these, like, esports type uh, questions, is... Uh, I'll just read it. Sebastian Lachon said, Robert just reminded me something about team lately. There were a lot of team events, GPs, and SCG. I'm 
uh, that team events are a blast when you are actually uh, playing in the event. However, when watching the stream, I feel like disconnected. I feel disconnected, and commentators are all over the place. Uh, that being said, you enjoy the concept of teams as viewers or players, and then there's some suggestion in the chat of like maybe they should just put all three separate matches on with no commentary. And another person replied that, "Well, you probably underestimate how important commentary is." Brian, do you have any take on this? Uh, I guess I recognize it's a real concern. I think probably as a commentator, it's extremely difficult to hop between casting different formats. Um, I could see that being really challenging because you kind of get like a flow going when you're just working one format. That's not going to be possible when you're bouncing around in a team tournament. Um, you know, I guess I, I would say this is a pretty temporary problem. Like they're really focused on teams right now because we have the team pro tour coming up. It was kind of a, a thing they wanted to do for the 25th anniversary. I don't think teams are ever going to fully go away again. We're not going to get back to that, but things are going to tone down pretty soon. Um, some of the novelty is wearing off. I have a problem with team events as far as just kind of like, it's difficult for me to schedule team events. Like a lot of my GP attendance is, is based on am I free that weekend? Um, and I, and I, it's hard for me to forecast that in advance. So I tend not to even try and attend team events because it's just like, I don't want the responsibility of bailing on my team at the last second and disappointing them. Um, and I think a lot of probably like working professionals have that issue when it comes to team events. So I would like to see them scale back from a coverage standpoint. Um, I guess there's no like downside of just dumping the raw footage of the other formats. Like if you have cameras floating above all three tables, just let the raw footage play on another channel. That seems okay to me. You're hurting your viewership numbers, but like, I don't think they're super into the viewership numbers as a metric. Like they look at them, but I don't think they consider that the, the term, the determinative number for success. Like they're not all about the views. It's just about getting it out there. So it's, it's probably fine. I don't think a ton of people would watch. Um, commentary is super important. Like, look at why, despite having better players and, um, you know, really the more high-stakes event, oftentimes Star City events draw more than the official Magic events. And that's not to throw any shade the way of those commentators. I think they've improved a tremendous amount. But they were playing catch-up with, with Cedric and Patrick um, to get to the point where they were at. They, they had a high bar and they're doing a lot to get closer to that bar, um, but they're not there yet. And, and I think Patrick and Cedric will always be the go-to magic commentators. And that's what really drives Star City's viewership versus the Mothership's viewership. Um, so just having no um, commentators whatsoever, you're probably looking at pretty low numbers, but it's, it's fine. I think you'd probably dump the raw footage out there. Uh, well, we didn't have you on uh... On the last episode where we talked about the, the new way they're doing the modern Super League, I don't know if you've read anything into that, uh, Bri. No, I don't know anything about it. So they're doing, a, uh, man, quickly, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, where they have uh, teams of three, and they each come with um, a set of modern decks, but they're borrowing stuff like League of Legends. Oh, it's like a team of three, but you each pick a player, and you sort of just... You play a game of modern, and once you beat one of their teammates, like they're eliminated, and you have to beat, like they're basically you have to defeat their entire team, and they have to use a different deck each time. But they've borrowed League of Legend concepts, like you can ban one of their decks before that. Um, do you see any appeal in that type of stuff, like borrowing from, from different games? Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm really into that. I mean, I think it requires a tremendous level of viewer investment. You have to have very knowledgeable viewers. It, it's really 
a great idea for that product. It sounds like a really cool thing because that's a very uh, enfranchised viewer they're getting, like someone who really knows the game, um, whose hand you don't have to hold so much. Whereas the mainstream, I, I think that's a little risky. Um, you know, there's a lot to explain there. You're better off just focusing on the actual gameplay of Magic for the mainstream. But for something like the, you know, modern, what's, what's it called? The modern Super Series? Is that right? Super League, I think. Super League. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that idea. That's cool. Matt, uh, any team events for you in, in the future? Anyone like just slamming you as your modern or legacy uh, player? Uh, yeah. Uh... There's going to be the team RPQ in the later on the year, and same thing with the uh, the team Grand Prix in uh, Toronto. I've been already picked up as a legacy player. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, did you have a preference, Mar- or just less people know legacy, and you're, you're like that slam legacy expert on the team? Uh, by far, legacy <laughs> is my favorite format to play, and uh, and just in general. Okay. And the pro- I imagine there's less legacy players though, like less good ones. So, like if I had you on my team, I'm putting you in the legacy slot probably. Yes, I'm definitely uh, on top of a small mountain. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that does not mean that your accomplishments are not impressed. Because I'm really impressed seeing your your name constantly pop up in the last couple of months. Um, is there anything you you want to shout out, uh, Matt? As uh, we're going to kick you and Brian out here. Uh, nope, I'm good. Uh, where can they find you on Twitter or, or anywhere to ask you some legacy and modern questions? Uh, you can find me in the First Strike Nation if you, if you want to hit me up there about any, anything legacy. Uh, there's a lot more, more content for modern, so you can reach out to other people for stuff like that, but I, I'd be happy to answer. And then on Twitter, I'm at uh, It's Mad Dilts on Twitter. Alrighty. Uh, what about you, Brian? Brian, any, anything uh, else you want to talk about or, or plug? I don't think there's anything I want to talk about, but I have to do something for one of our listeners real quick, and that's Doug Strong. And no one but Doug Strong is going to understand what I'm about to do, but it's worth it to me, so I'm going to do it right now. Doug. He specifically requested Matchbox 20. I couldn't not play it for him. So <laughs> I hope that really made his, uh, his night. And also put to, to rest the rumors that my guitars are strictly cosmetic. I'm not good, but I, I do know how to play guitar. So. <laughs> that was Matthew Dilks, face-to-face games Toronto Open champion. And that was Brian Gottlieb from the First Strike Podcast. And the game podcast. Uh, I'm here with Andy. Uh, we're going to try to get Alex Bianchi in as we wrap up the show. Uh, we're still not done. And Alex is in. Hopefully your connection does not bug. How's it going, Alex? We're going to jump you in straight to... Actually, let's just continue the uh, standard talk. We had Brian on, and he's really basically saying anyone that is playing... I can't even say the name anymore because I think a chupa babra. A chupa babra. A chupa babra is uh, is an idiot. So or has fallen under a trap. So what do you think about that? And you had the back and forth in the first Strike Nation with them. 
Yeah, and I was listening to you guys' conversation before this a little bit too. So, uh, basically, yeah, I agree with uh, everything you guys went over. His deck is a little bit better set up to make use of Hostage Taker, and uh, some of the other decks maybe aren't so much. So, um, yeah, all you guys made great points. I have nothing really to dispute uh, as far as those, does, those debates does go. Affect, does that affect how you want to play Grixis? It did, actually. After, after listening to Brian's arguments, it kind of uh, convinced me to maybe give Hostage Taker a try. So, we'll see. What? Okay, so both, <laughs> of, you, both of you guys will, will, will play your Hostage Taker. I, I don't know what Elliot thinks, Andy. Uh, if, if he agrees, your, your fellow deck-building bro. My co-captain, my first mate, my my Padawan. <laughs> we, uh, we'll, pro- we'll probably try it. Well, we have to try it. You can't just... Brian's a very smart guy, and to just, like, dismiss what he says compared to your point would be foolish. So, like, I think you should take in what anyone tells you, no matter how good or bad you think they are, and you should at least apply and try it, because otherwise you might miss something that you would otherwise... Uh, you might miss something that you would, could utilize later. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe Hostage Taker is the truth, and it's the four-drop slash seven-drop that the deck needs, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, it's funny, Alex, that, that I'm going to have you jump in as we go to the judge situation in GP Houston. Uh, interesting situation. I uh, would have liked to have Jonathan Good on, except uh, he was busy. But uh, he, he left his thoughts in, in the Facebook group. And there's nothing, I mean, too much to talk about outside of what we think that we could do moving forward. Uh, basically, someone was disqualified uh, to players uh, that face each other in round 15 were disqualified um, after one of the players was apparently joking about, you know, bribery, like really walking a fine line there. Like, I don't know exactly the exact details, but one player thought the other player was joking about bribing him for the match. And then, but the player that thought, his opponent was joking, ended up winning 2-0 and, and probably thought nothing of it afterwards. But later on, a judge overheard his opponent in some other event talking about it, uh, joke, that he was joking about the whole bribery, or, or he couldn't believe that his opponent didn't take up on his uh, bribe offer. And then both players ended up being disqualified. Um, what was that about it, Andy? I think... Yeah, yeah. So the guy, yeah, player player A made a joke about uh, bribing the guy, and player B thought it was a joke, so didn't say anything about it. Player B won. Both got disqualified. <laughs> and now there's an uproar because the or the player that got DQ'd that thought it was all a joke and thought he did nothing wrong that won two zero didn't accept any bribes. Post a long Reddit thread like he didn't know what was going on and, and felt like a victim. And then of course the whole Reddit. Community has responded like being, I guess, angry more at the judges and and, and everything. Uh, what was your early impression of of the situation, Alex? When when you heard about this, or is this the first time you you read about this? No, actually, I read the I read the Reddit thread today, so I kind of knew what was going on. Um, like you said, we don't really know the whole story. We just kind of know the one perspective of it, so it's all kind of going off that. But from what he said, it's like. What I took away from it is, first of all, bribery is like nothing to joke about at all. It's, uh, 
it sounded like the guy thought he was making lighthearted jokes, but and that's why he didn't call a judge or even think to call a judge. But that's something where alarm bells need to go off in your head whenever someone even starts to joke about something like that and you need to call a judge. So that's a lesson to take away for everyone, really. Um, and it's also, you know, you have to be really strict about bribery rules. I think judges have to um, really stand by the rules and the penalties for it. So, yeah, as, as Jonathan Good, our, our regional coordinator says it, it, in the group, the bribery policy is really clear in the rules for legal reasons and judges don't have any leeway or flexibility with this one. Uh, it's like jokes about bombs in an airport. We all know you probably aren't doing anything bad, but people who set this policy have drawn a hard line on this one. Head judges do their best to educate players each tournament, how not to get themselves DQ'd, but sometimes people slip through the cracks my opinion, it sucks, but if I was the head judge, I would have made the same ruling. Makes sense. They're really strict about this. And uh, that's why even at local tournaments at the last round, at least all the judges that uh, judge the events I play at the last round, there's always this reminder uh, of bribery. Um, but I, I guess the player in question, the, pl- the victim here, or the uh, person who got, uh, who felt who got DQ wrongly, there's that feel bad like they i can understand that because as a, a shy guy myself to not want to call someone on a joke on a bribery joke and do you see that perspective andy yeah yeah i've got some opinions on this one okay. so <clears throat> the player who heard the joke so the guy who didn't make the joke i i can totally see how that you wouldn't call a judge there i, I personally i think i would but I can completely understand the position of not calling a judge there because it's you're already so tense. You're playing for the top eight of this GP. You think the guy's joking. You don't take it seriously at the very least. And so, like, you're not going to call a judge. You just want to play your match and move on. And that's what he did. And to be disqualified later, it's a huge feel bad for that guy. It sucks. He should have he should have done he should have said something but it's hard to know that and you got to feel for the guy it's hard like as a human you you don't want to have that huge confrontation can you imagine if the judge says afterwards like they don't think it was a uh, bribery and you just have to sit there and play against this guy after this incredibly tense interaction and then play an incredibly tense match after like you probably just want to get through this match and get over with but uh, the real opinion I have on this is the guy who made the joke. I, I strongly believe that if they're not friends, there's no way he made this joke without an inkling of intention of getting of getting it, of getting the concession. There's no way you make that joke. I think that there has to be a part of him that was just praying to whatever that this guy would be like, be like I would love $1,000. Like, that's what must have happened. There's no way you make that joke without a little bit of you wanting it. It's kind of like how you make, uh, like, half-hearted jokes about things, but you're a little bit serious, right? Like, when something bothers you, you're like, oh, you didn't do the dishes again. Like, good joke, right? But, like, you you seriously are, that's a real concern of yours. I think that this guy definitely had a little bit of bad intentions, and he he let it slip. He wanted this really badly, and he thought that, if he makes this joke, it's possible that he gets this concession and for, for money, which is not a big concern for the guy, obviously. It's really rough, but I think there's no way you make that joke without 
some bad intentions. Even if they're like deep rooted and like on the surface, you believe that you like just were making a joke. I think if the guy said, yeah, I'll give you a thousand dollars, the guy would take it. That's not knowing the other guy's side of the story though. Right. Right. It's just knowing like human nature of, of making jokes like that. Like what, what makes you think that that is funny to like make a joke like that? I don't, I just don't think it's funny. So I think that he wanted something from it. I, from like you, the, you talk about the before the confrontational stuff, and and I've maybe I've changed, and 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 I would be more active now. But I I remember even that pre-releases or whatever that I would feel bad telling someone that they couldn't like mana weave. <laughs> I just felt so so guilty uh, personally. So I I tell you, I tend to feel like I just want to play the game, and if someone were to offer me a bribe and maybe they don't know the rules i don't know that i would just decline and play on i don't know like alex did you know that you had to report to the judge like i honestly if i was quizzed before i read the story i'm not sure i would get the answer right i'm not 100 percent sure that i knew that i had to call a judge yeah that's kind of what i thought when i read it too i wasn't sure what i would have done in that situation either but i definitely think andy is onto something where the player making the joke was definitely trying to maybe test the waters by, you know, playing it off like, oh man, I would pay a lot of money for this. Just kidding, you know, and just seeing how his opponent would react. Like maybe a little bit of bribery, you know, and then just kind of, if the person reacted poorly, he'd be like, oh no, it was just a joke, man, just a prank, you know, just kind of playing it off like that. So that's very suspicious sounding to me. I kind of don't side with him. For me, Andy, this sucks because I think like, I gained a lot because of this happening. Now, anytime this happens for me, I know I need to call a judge. Um, is there anything judges should do differently? Do you think they do enough to, to say like joking about bribery is, is off limits? They, they could add it to the, the announcements. Like there's, they make announcements. I don't think an extra five seconds is really going to matter, especially because they only make the announcement in the last round. And it only really pertains to a very small number of people going into the last round of any big tournament like that. I think hopefully this serves as a lesson. It sucks that that guy had to be the one who helped us all learn this lesson. It's really unfortunate because it, it's, it's weird to say, I think he should be disqualified. I do, but I, he, I also don't think he really did that much wrong. But I think he has to be disqualified. And it feels really bizarre to me to feel that way. Like, you feel heartbroken. You're like, ah, oh, you gotta go, but I really wish you didn't. <laughs> he won 2-0, fair and square. He did, but he did, yep. Yeah. You gotta disqualify him, though. Yeah, yeah, you couldn't, uh, as, as mentioned earlier, like, I don't think you can, just because of the nature of the whole Watsi wants to stray away from gambling as much as possible. You just can't make any exceptions despite like feeling for the guy. Yeah. Let's say, let's say he lost and didn't have as good as intentions as he, he has, like, it seems like this guy has, and he knows that there's like a bribery joke on the table and he knows that and didn't say anything. Does that change it? Like it might, right? Yeah. Right. You're right. So, yeah. 
But yeah, we're seeing a lot of people from different sides feeling the guy. But I think uh, all of us really agree that that the ruling was correct. Just like sucks that we have to learn. Um, like the rules are the rules, and I agree they should be like de- this type of rule should be as strict as possible. It just sucks that like him because of him, I'm learning that I need to do it all the time now. So okay, uh, so there's some chat in there. Matt Nelson, shout out to Matt Nelson. Totally agrees with Andy. Um, play, uh, Elliot uh, mentions that player A who made the joke apparently said, I can't believe he didn't concede to me and talked more about his bride in a side event, which a judge heard and launched an investigation. Um, yeah. And then at the end of the day, I think a huge problem is the mentality that judges are not there to protect players in this situation. Judge calls are never accusations of cheating. Call one. They're helpful. Yeah, I, like even I find it hard. Like Even I just uh, haven't gone over that. I still feel a little bit bad sometimes calling the judge. Yeah, that's a, a stigma that people got to get over, though. And I'm not sure how to, to get people through, like, over the hump. Because so what happens is these players who have the mentality of, like, let's say they're, they're even keel on judges. Like, their first interactions with the judge are going to be, like, a ruling that goes against them or, like, a, like a ruling that uh, changes a match result for them or they wrote their deck list wrong. And, they're going to get a game loss. They're going to get a match loss. And that's the kind of stuff that are going to make these players, it's going to stick in their mind. They're going to remember how these judges hurt them and not how much they're helping them. Judges do so many great things, and they're just enforcing rules to actually protect the players from being cheated against and to protect the players from uh, having people uh, like misregister their decks and stuff like that against them to gain an advantage. They're protecting them. And it just sucks that they receive the bad end of it. And then the judges get the bad reputation for just enforcing the rules that are trying to help protect these players. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, one thing you can do if you don't want to seem like you're accusing your opponent of something when calling a judge, you can just call a judge and be like, hey, judge, uh, can I just ask you a question about a certain card away from the table? And then, you know, go talk to them about, even if it's something like, can you watch my opponent for slow play or they're taking too long sideboarding or something like that, but you don't want to like embarrass them or make them feel guilty in front of them. You can just do that. That's a good suggestion. Uh, yeah. I, I hope myself, like I've been playing for so long and been part of this game for so long, but I still have that you know, feeling uh, whenever, but I have called judges often. It's just that I, I can just totally relate to people who have not played nearly as much as me or who aren't, uh, comfortable with being confrontational uh in that way uh be uncomfortable uh calling the judge in a lot of these situations but hopefully the i mean hopefully we we can get past that and alex that's a good tip um we're gonna wrap this show up alex anything uh modern and standard that you can give to our listeners before we wrap up i mean i'm really excited about the modern pt this weekend i think it's gonna be sweet excited to see what teams come up with have you had time to touch anything? Um, I played standard last weekend, so I mean, but it was the t- it was a team open that I played in, so I did get to watch a lot of modern, um, which was interesting. How'd you do? Uh, as a team, we didn't do so hot. We we did failed to make day two. Um, I had a lot of fun playing new standard though. Uh, I played Grixis, like me and Andy would have been talking about uh, this past week. Would you learn anything from the event that would cause you to change the list moving forward? 
Yeah, I felt like after the event, there's just so many different ways you can, directions you can go in standard right now. Um, playing a reactive deck like Grixis, I felt like wasn't really where I wanted to be for the first week. Okay. Uh, and there's just crazy things like red-white sunbirds invocation I faced, where I felt unprepared for really fast aggro decks, where I, I felt it was kind of pulling my deck in all different directions. So, yeah. But now you're, you're saying you're going back to it for, the, for this coming week? with hostage taker not necessarily i just think if you are playing grixis that's a change you could you might look into into making okay to get rid of the troop of babbers <laughs> yeah troop of babbers <laughs> uh shout out to our first strike producer jonathan good calcimer chick j thomas eden sasha papo Derek pipe matthew kelly adrian merchantson uh super appreciative of all everything that you guys do uh and everyone in the First Strike Nation themselves, and you can join the group. We've been mentioning the Facebook group a lot, which is great. Great promotion for us. Um, Patreon.com slash First Strike. If you just want to support the cast, if you've been listening for more than a year, and you've been enjoying the POV series that Andy and Alex have done, these two guys, uh, awesome series, have done in the last, uh, we've had, we've come up with three now in the past couple of weeks that uh, please, any dollar would support us being able to produce more content like that in the future and different types of content as we come up with more and more ideas moving forward. Um, I think that's that's it. Gemini's in the house and he's in the house and we're gonna play some I guess not no no more chupabobbers. We're gonna play some hostage takers. So with that we'll see you next week and hopefully uh Rob can join us because his car actually broke down an hour before the show. That's why he couldn't make it he was supposed to come on. And uh, if you enjoyed the show, uh, shout out to everyone in the chat. Leave us a thumbs up and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you, guys. Bye.